Good morning, Exchange. We are going to be in Exodus 28 and 29 today, covering some really fascinating things, some things that you would probably, I typically skip over, to be honest. This is one of those chapters uh, that when reading, you're like, why does this matter? What is this for? Let's skip to something really, really good, a story of David and Goliath, this David of a uh, story of like something, some kind of victory of some sort, Right. And uh, today we're covering the, the clothes that the priests wear. That's what we're doing. And uh, we're dedicated to fi- figuring out like why, why it is that, that God preserved these words for us. And remember, we talked about a few weeks ago that the, um, John says that there are so many things that Christ did while he was here, so many things that he said, so many miracles that he did, that all the books in the world could not contain the things of God. And yet, instead of giving us more stories about Jesus like this, God has preserved these words about the clothes that the priests wear. And so our job as believers, our job as Christ followers is to figure out literally why. Why is it that God wants us to read this and what is it about these words that apply to our lives today? I think we'll look at these passages and figure out a couple of, of really important things about who Christ is to us as our great high priest. So I wanna take you to or back at a time, maybe, um, maybe many of you grew up, have always lived in a time where there's cell phones, right? Like these little devices in your pocket that you're able to call anyone, anytime, and they're your Rolodex. They have your numbers in here, right? Like you don't even, it's honestly, I was at a conversation last week uh, and someone was like, hey, what's your number? And they're like, to be honest, I, I don't know. I don't know my own telephone number, right? They don't know how to tell, they just, you know, shoot them their contact, shoot them a text or something like that. But there was a day when none of that existed, right? Last night we're sending our oldest, he's going out with some friends and our last conversation was how much, how much battery life does your phone have, right? That's the question. And we had this whole conversation because he spent the day texting and hanging out with friends and he's getting ready to go out the house with like 13%. I'm like, 13%? I'm not going to be able to track you for the entire night with 13%, right? When I want to get in touch with you and text you and you get back to me immediately because I pay your phone bill, 13% is not going to cut it. There was a day, if you remember, there was a day where uh, the best case scenario for me when I was growing up, I had a pager, right? We, we stuck this little box to the side of our, like in our pants leg or something like that. And the best case scenario for our parents to get in touch with us was to dial a number and then it would beep. And then you would press another button, like the number that you wanted them to call. And so here's the great thing is about pagers. At that moment, as a teenager, I could be like, oh, not calling that number back, right? When I got home, I'd be like, I left it in the car, I think, you know? All of the things, so like you could decide, do I want to talk to this person? Do I want them to have constant contact with me? And there's a time where when you went out, nobody knew where you were, right? You just had to call back and call and say, hey, I'm here, I'm on my way. It was a very disrupted communication compared to what we have today. Likewise, today, when Suzanne says we have this opportunity and this availability of prayer, where we get to talk to God about literally anything that matters in our life to us, and he hears us, and he cares, and what Suzanne is saying and what she'll say on Saturday is, you can learn to hear from him. You can learn to 
to speak to God and you can learn to discern his voice. But it wasn't always that way. Back in Exodus, we see this journey where it's people of Israel don't even know who God is. Literally in Exodus chapter 19, we've recounted this passage several times where Moses brings the people up to Mount Sinai and it says to meet God. He literally introduces the people of Israel, God's chosen people to God. The mountain quakes, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets, there's all of those things that have no idea who he is, what he wants, and they have absolutely no idea how to engage with him. So he seems like this very distant God. And so as they're camping last week, we talked about the tabernacle. It is the portable temple where God will dwell among his people. And we had the instructions for the tabernacle where he says, listen, I want to be with you. I want to be around you. I want you to be my people and I want to be your God. And so I'm going to dwell with you. I'm gonna literally, the words say, tent among you. I'm gonna camp with you. But yet, even in those instructions for the tabernacle, you have all of these disruptors or separations between God and Israel. You have the outer court, which no one can really go in except for priests. You have the inner court, which another level of priests. And then you have the Holy of Holies that houses the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God. And then only one person, the high priest, could enter into that place. And up until now, that wasn't even a possibility. Think about back in Genesis, you have these interactions with God. It was only a one-way communication and it was only when God wanted to reach out and speak specifically to a person for a purpose. You have in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is living his life, loving his life, he's in prosperity, he has friends, family, all those things. And God comes and says to him, leave your home, leave your country, leave your friends, leave your relatives, leave your wealth and go to a land, which I will show you. God deals with him in that way. Earlier in Genesis, we have God coming to Noah and says, you know, the story there, build an ark, I'm gonna send this flood. You have later on after Abraham, you have Isaac and Jacob. God comes to wrestle with Jacob. Then we have Joseph. And then we have 400 years where no one hears anything from God. 400 years. That's longer than America has been a nation. 400 years. No one hears anything. And we see in Exodus that God says that he has heard Israel's cry. He's heard them speak to him about the slavery that they're in, but he hasn't answered yet. Think about that. It's like you constantly dial that pager number. You're constantly hitting, call me back, call me back, call me back, call me back. And there's no answer for 400 years. So then God sets up this tabernacle and he inaugurates, he commences this office. He builds this office called a priest. And this is a way where God is ordaining and inviting constant interaction with himself and his people through the office of a priest. And so this is the passage today in Exodus chapter 28 and 29. And so he's still speaking to Moses. Now, remember, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. This is part of the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses goes up. He's going to come back down. I'm going to give you a precursor. You probably know the story. Now, he's up 40 days, 40 nights. He's going to come back down with the Ten Commandments. He's going to find Aaron and the nation of Israel uh, worshiping this golden calf. You guys know this story, right? But this is the in-between. 
right? This is the moment where God is giving him this instructions. But I want you to understand and remember that God knows all things and God knows and understands that when he says in just a second that he's going to make Aaron the very first high priest, Moses is going to come down from the mountain just days later and find Aaron worshiping at the feet of a golden calf. Think about that for a second. Think about that for a second. I think that's going to speak to us as we realize who we are in Christ. And so we're going to begin in Exodus 28, 1 through 4. And so Moses is with God. God is speaking directly to Moses. And he says, so then bring near to yourself Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me, Aaron, uh, Nadab, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Itmahar, Aaron's sons, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful persons who have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him and that he may minister to me uh, as a priest to me. And these are the garments you should make, a breastpiece and an ephod and a robe and a tunic uh, of checkered work, of turban, a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that he might minister as priests to me. So after all the instructions of the tabernacle and all the detail were given, God tells Moses to come in under what circumstances and the detail of which there are to even dress themselves. But the first qualification is this. You have to be Aaron, the sons of Aaron, and then later on, you have to be of the lineage of Aaron. Notice this in Deuteronomy chapter eight, it's kind of a parallel passage. He says this, and at that time, Moses is speaking. He says, at that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant and to stand before the Lord to serve him and to bless in his name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or an inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God spoke to him. So the only people that could be priests were from the tribe of Levi. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't earn it. You couldn't be elected to it. There was no way in which a person could just decide, I would love to be a priest. The very first qualification was that you would come from the line of Levi. Now, if you remember just a little biblical literacy, like where are we in the story? There's 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph is not listed in the 12 tribes. Do you remember why? Because when Jacob, his father, was blessing him, he gives a double portion to Joseph through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are actually grandsons of Jacob, but they are included into the 12 tribes. You subtract the tribe of Levi, it says that he pulled him out of the tribes of Israel, and now they are set apart as priests. My first question or my first thought is, of course, well, that's not fair. And I think when I thought that earlier in the week, the Holy Spirit asked me a question, to whom? Yeah, I think my first thought was, man, that kind of, that's kind of bad news for the Levites. They're pulled out of the tribes of, of Israel and they're not given an inheritance. And that's how I was thinking. That's not fair. That's, that's kind of a bad deal. And God says, I have something more for you. I have literally the very presence of God for you. 
Maybe I'm the only person in this room that thinks of material possessions like that and in my bank account and the things that I can accomplish. And I think, would I rather have those things? If I had the choice, would I place myself in maybe the line of Judah or the line of Manasseh or Ephraim who, who got granted these massive pieces of land and inheritance? Or would I rather be of the tribe of Levi who literally I get to stand into the presence of God? Luckily for us, Scripture teaches us that now through Christ, all believers have equal and undeserved access to God. It's no longer under this system where you have to be a Levite, you have to be in this bloodline to access the presence of God. Scripture teaches us that all of us, all of us who call on the name of Jesus have been granted equal and undeserved access to God. Look at these passages, just a a small uh, little sample of what Scripture says. Peter, the apostle, writes in 1 Peter 2, he says, And the coming to him as to a living stone, which was rejected by men, but it's a choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, watch this, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He continues in verse nine, but you are a chosen race. He declares this, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own choosing so that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter declares, he says, all believers, all those who claim to know Christ and follow him, you have been set apart as priests. It is no longer through the line of Aaron that you have to enter into the presence of God. It's literally through the blood of Christ. And look at the end in Revelation, Jesse talked about this for a second. It's very crazy, but at the end, this is very clear. Revelation chapter five, it says this, and they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the blood and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your own blood, uh, men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. So scripture's literally declaring us, those who place our faith in Christ, he says, now you are priests, a holy nation, and have unhindered access to God. So as it continues, as as God continues to give Moses instructions, he gives him instructions for not just who can be priests, but also what those priests have to wear and what they have to do. We'll pick up in verse six and he says this, and they shall make an ephod of gold of blue and purple scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a skillful workman. And it should have two pieces joined to its ends on its shoulders that it may be joined. The skillful woven band, which is on it, shall be like its workmanship of the same material of gold and blue and purple, scarlet material, fine twisted linen. You should take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. And six on names on one stone, on the names of the remaining six on the other, according to their birth. And as a jeweler engraves the signet, you shall engrave the two stones according to the names of the sons of Israel. And you shall set them in the figgle, uh, filigree settings of gold and you shall put the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as the stones of a memorial to the sons of Israel. Listen to this. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders as a memorial. 
Now, obviously, like we understand that if we're going to bear any weight for any distance, for any length of time, typically we put that on our shoulders. We carry bags on our shoulders. We, we carry objects and things that we're, we're pulling or pushing. Uh, you know, like you, you're, you're doing your most work. It's where your, your body can absorb the most weight. And so uh, in this significance, he's placing the names of the tribes on the shoulders. Why? He says this, uh, for a memorial to the Lord. It's literally as the high priest is bearing the weight of Israel and their sins as he's entering into the presence of God. And then he continues about this breastplate that he's going to uh, give in verse 15. And you shall make the breastplate of judgment and the work of a skillful workman, like the work of an ephod, you shall make it gold, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine twisted linen, you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span of width. A span would be literally like the hang loose here, you know, like so a span of double and a span And he says, uh, you should do that. It should be square. You shall mount it on four stones. And the first row should be a row of a ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, sapphire, and diamond. The third row, a jankith, and and a gate, and amethyst, maybe. Any jewelers in the house? Anyone who wants to call me out on my mispronunciation? Jana will later today at lunch. (laughs) And the stones shall be according to their names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, and it should be in the gravings of steel, and each according to his names of the 12 tribes. And you shall put in the breastplate, this is interesting, a judgment of Aram and Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord, and Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. This is one of those weird crazy things in scripture. To be honest, I have never sat through like a Sunday school lesson of any kind on Urim and Thummim. Uh, To be honest, it's probably because most theologians and scholars are baffled to be exact what they are. Uh, most guesses would be that there are some stones that this breastplate was folded into, and these are some stones that they would place in it. It literally means lights and darks. And our best guesses are that they're stones that, it, that the priests would use to gain answers from God. Uh, some suggestions would be that there would be one stone, a dark one and a light one. And you would ask questions basically like almost like our modern day eight ball, right? Uh, where you would say, you know, do you want Israel to go into war? And the priest would pull in into his, his pocket here and pull out a stone. If it was light, it would maybe indicate yes. If it was dark, it might indicate No, it might've been more stones so that they couldn't know exactly which one they were grabbing. Uh, Some scholars believed that they were more like dice and they would uh, give, you know, like roll something and they would literally roll dice with these uh, stones uh, to gain information, access, and also she found this on the web. I'm gonna read that later because I wanna know what exactly she found on the web. <laughs> so we have this, this, this spot where we have this, these two crazy objects and scripture actually gives us pictures of this 
Throughout the Old Testament, specifically in Numbers chapter 27, I'm going to skip ahead a few verses, Matt. Uh, when when um, Joshua was appointed to succeed Moses, he was given the ability to consult these stones. Notice this in Numbers. He says, moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest. So the priest is wearing them. And he shall inquire of him for judgment of the Aram before the Lord. And at his command, they should go out and command uh, that they should come in, both he and the sons of Israel with him, even the congregation. Uh, Joshua told the Israelites when to stay and when to go uh, by consulting these stones that God ordained for that time. Another man uh, consulted the breast piece, breast piece was a decision from King Saul. And when the Philistines mobilized their forces against Israel, Saul was afraid. He wanted to know the outcome of battle. So he consulted the Aram and Thurman in 1 Samuel 28. Interesting enough, God didn't give him a yes or a no. He gave him a maybe. By contrast, when David asked God if he should attack the Philistines, God said, go and attack. And he knew this by consulting the Aram and Thummim in 1 Samuel 23. David later received the same answer when used again, if he should attack the Amalekites. Uh, Also, the Aram and Thummim were used in the days of Nehemiah when he was rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting that we see this happen over and over and over again through scripture. And yet when we ask the Lord into our heart, when we surrender our lives to him, we don't get a package in the mail with an ermine and thummin, though that would be nice. I think as I was reading these passages and I saw all of these moments in Israel where they were looking at these two stones for direction. Really, they were looking for God to speak to them clearly. And I noticed all of these things and I thought, man, what what would that be like? What kind of peace would that be like? When you said, God, I don't know, should we go to war? Nope, okay. Hey guys, we're gonna stand right here. Hey, hey, should we do this? And you reach in, it's a light and you're like, yeah, 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 okay. We're gonna go. I mean, there's a part of us, I, I don't know if you're like me, but when I, when I read these passages, I was very envious of this moment. But I think we have to remember that only the high priest wore the breastplate. And though kings were granted at times the ability to consult the ermine and thummin, no one else had access. And yet today, through Christ, believers are given the very spirit of God that speaks to our heart. Through Christ, believers are given the very spirit of God. Notice this in John chapter 16, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you. It says that he will guide you into all truth, that he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and whatever he discloses to you, what is to come. Acts 16.6, it's just a story. It says, they passed through a Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the spirit to speak a word in Asia. Literally, the spirit speaks to them in such a way where they're about to speak. And it's almost as if they pull out the dark and say, am I to speak? And he says, nope, but there's no stones. 
literally in their hearts, their spirit, the spirit gave them directions. It says very clearly, think about this. They went through this region to be missionaries. And yet for some reason, the spirit withheld them and said, don't say a word. That's clarity. Romans chapter eight, verse 14, it says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So it's an if then statement. If you're being led by the spirit, then you are the sons of God. Also, if you are the sons of God, then you will be led by the spirit. I think though for, for us, the reason why this is difficult and the reason why many of us are thinking, it's not how it works for me. I think we have not learned to distinguish the voice of God. We've not learned it. I mean, think about this. If I suddenly started speaking a different language and you would say, why is he speaking that? Why is he saying that? Like, what's he saying in that way? I haven't told you exactly what I'm speaking. You have to try to formulate different words and different variations of accent, whatever it might be to try to decipher what it is. The Bible has said, this is the way that God is going to speak to you through the spirit of God. And you need to learn to discern his voice. So the way that we discern his voice and the way that we learn to be sensitive to his voice is through the moments where we are obedient. Through those moments where you feel like the spirit is speaking to your heart, to your soul, to your mind, and it feels a little bit uncomfortable. The way that we learn to discern his voice is when we, through obedience, through courageous obedience, say, all right. And then when we do that, the spirit confirms. I'll give you an example of just how I am still learning. There's been times in my life where um, I'm driving down the road and the spirit, I feel like, has said to call this person, to reach out to this person. There was a time not too long ago where I literally, I've never called this person in my entire life. I had to look up their number and I was at a stoplight or something. I looked it up and the spirit of God just said, call this person. And I think, you know, you ever have those arguments in your head where you're like, why, why would I call that person? Why would I, do, like, I have nothing to say. I don't even know what I'm checking in on. I've It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Right? Ignore the balloon being deflated. You know? <laughs> and I think to myself, like, what, what, what is that? What, what is that? <laughs> but I also think to myself in that moment, like, what is, like, what is that that I'm going to say? Like, what, why does the spirit want me to, to call this person? And just, just not too long ago, I decided, okay, I'm gonna just call this person. So I just dial it up and say, hey man, I don't, to be honest, I just started this way. To be honest, I have no idea why I'm calling you except the spirit just prompted me to. Actually, I think, I think the spirit prompted me to because <laughs> I wasn't sure. And then he started saying, man, this, this was from the Lord. Thank you for being obedient. We had several minutes of conversation about what was happening in his life at that very moment. 
And so, yes, I think back to that moment. I think, okay, man, it was great to be obedient. But then I think back to all the moments where I wasn't. And all that was at stake was a phone call. Or all that was at stake was coming to someone and say, like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but my heart just says, I need to ask, ask you, are you okay? I, I don't know why the Spirit's asking me to check on you. I don't know why the Spirit's asking me to go back and pray. I don't know why the Spirit's doing this, but I'm gonna just simply obey. And after steps of obedience, we learn to distinguish the voice of God much clearer and much better than stones that we carry around in a pocket on our chest. And remember, only the priests could do that. And yet God says, anyone who are the sons of God are able to be led by the Spirit. We have been given this gift. So the last piece of clothing is this garb. It's a turban. It's a plate of gold around the, uh, the head of the high priest. And he says this, Actually, uh, I don't think I wrote it in there. Uh, it's, it's in Exodus chapter 28. The last piece of the, the clothing is literally this turban and around it is this gold plated emblem and literally says, holy to the Lord. It's as if Aaron has to place this on his head. It projects to the Lord, I'm set apart, but also it reminds Aaron that God is holy and I have to be set. And so the next chapter, Exodus 29, talks about the literal setting apart of the priest. It's the consecration of the priest. And so this is what God says, this is how you should do it. Now, this is what you should do to them, uh, to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Take one young bull, two rams without blemish, unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers and spread with oil. You shall make them fine with wheat and flour. This is why we skip these parts, right? Because it doesn't seem to make sense. But you should put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull with the two rams. And then you shall bring Aaron and his sons in the doorway of the tent of the meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe and the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece, breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set uh, the turban on his head, put the holy crown on the turban and you shall take anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them and you shall gird them with sausage and Aaron and his, and his sons bind caps on them and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual state. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So it's literally like the ordaining process to set them apart. But what's interesting is once they have the tabernacle, once they have the clothes, once they're ordained, they still continually have to do a ceremonial cleansing and purification because Aaron and his sons are not pure. Remember, God is giving them these instructions, Mount Sinai, probably about this time, Aaron is helping cast a, a golden calf for a, an idol of worship. The Lord knows and understands that Aaron is not perfect. His sons are not perfect. The priests that come behind them will not be perfect. And so they have to do this continual sacrifice and purification process before they can either even enter into the court of the tabernacle. Watch this in Exodus 29, verse 38. Now this is what you should offer on the altar. Two one-year lambs each continuously. 
Notice this. I want you to understand this continuously over and over and over again. Then one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one tenth of an ephah and fine flour mixed with one fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. I, I wish we would use these measurements in our cookbooks, like a fourth of a hen, you know? I feel like that would be very simple. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight shall offer with the same grain offering and the drink offering is in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. And it should be continual burnt offerings through your generations at the doorway of the tent of the meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you, to speak with you there. And I will meet with the sons of Israel and it will be consecrated by my glory. And I will consecrate the tent of the meeting of the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I'm the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. So if you read the entire chapter of of Exodus 29, you get this context of this ritual, perpetual ritual state that the priests live in. That they're constantly offering up sacrifices and atonements, cleansing themselves, purifying themselves to even enter into the presence of it's just this state of over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's never satisfied. Atonement is never satisfied in this state because we know this, right? We know ourselves. And if we ask for forgiveness and if we go to the Lord and we literally, it's as if he washes our heart spotless. How long can we live like that? How long can you maintain that? God knows this and understands this. And so because he's holy, we talked about the tabernacle and what's required to enter because he's holy. The priests were constantly offering these sacrifices up for their sins and the sins of the nation. And to be included in that, you had to be in right standing with the nation of Israel. You had to be a person of Israel right? Who you were uh, obedient to. Uh, In fact, remember in Exodus, I don't know, early on, maybe in the first several chapters, if you remember where, when, when God was saying, if anyone foreigner uh, or sojourner comes among you, right? Bring them into the nation of Israel. Basically they had to be circumcised and done all of these things to become part of the Jewish nation. And then they could come through that sacrifice and through this system to God, which is why in the New Testament, so many people and uh, Pharisees and Sadducees had a problem with the idea that Gentiles could come and call themselves believers is because of this system where to gain access to God, you had to come through the priests, through the tabernacle and through the constant offering of sacrifices and atonements and cleansings and all of the things. And later on in scripture, it says day after day after day after day. It was never satisfied. I don't know how well your conscience could live under those standards. I couldn't do well. 
to know that maybe I'm forgiven yesterday, but man, until we sacrifice again, what, what is my status before God? How do I live? How do I approach him? I know the things that are in my heart. I know the things that are in my mind. I know the priest offered these things yesterday, but I've got these things. And so how can I even seek him? Hebrews, I said last week, gives a whole sermon on literally the tabernacle, the priests, and all the things. Notice, I just want to read a section of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer who says it in this way. For the law, since it was only the shadow of the things to come and not the very form of the things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect for those who draw near. Otherwise they would have not, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of the sins year by year. He's saying, because they had to constantly come, there's a reminder that you need to constantly come. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, a sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and a whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book and it is written of me, do your will, O God. He's pointing back to prophecy and he says this, and after saying above sacrifice and offering, the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not deserved, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. And he takes away the first in order to establish the second. He takes away the mandate of the temple, the tabernacle, and all of those things to establish the second, he says. And by this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And I love these words, once for all. Once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering, uh, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. I love this imagery that Christ sits down. You know, when you sit down, it's when your work is finished. There's nothing left to do. He says, Christ sits down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, by one offering himself, he perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He says this, from the cross, he has offered forgiveness, not just for our past, but for our present and for our future, Christ has redeemed us and God sees us in that light, he says. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant which I will make with them. And after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. 
This is good news. That through the blood of Christ, he says, literally Jesus promises us this. Because of his sacrifice, once and for all, he will remember our things no more. Can you fathom this? Can you, let me just say how this works. If you've ever genuinely gone to the Lord and confessed sin and asked for repentance more than once, you've done it too many times. You've done it too many times. Scripture promises that when we're faithful to confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive our sins. And he says he will remember them no more. So when I, through a guilty conscience, go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I just, he says, I, I have forgotten. Not because my mind is feeble and weak, but because I have chosen to. I've chosen to throw that sin as far as the east is from the west, as far as the depths of the oceans go to me. I remember it no more. It's not a continual work. It's, it's once and for all, he says. And there's, there's forgiveness of these things. Now, when there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. And therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, why? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated through us, through the veil. Remember when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn. Those who had access were only of the Levites, only the high priests. And now he says, through the veil has been torn. Now the access to God is all of us. And since we have a great high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance is a full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I love these words with full assurance of faith. Have you ever seen these videos maybe uh, on YouTube where um, the, like the short distance, um, I don't, I forget what they're called. The people who jump off of buildings and with a parachute. They're like only 30 feet, 30 stories off the ground. And as soon as they jump, they're jumping and this, this parachute opens. They do it, maybe their heart's pounding out of their chest. I don't know. But they do it in a way that they are absolutely sure. They're absolutely sure. Have you seen these videos? You think you're a crazy person. You're literally a crazy person. I think I would rather jump from 30,000 feet and have time to contemplate. Okay, my parachute's not gonna open. I guess I've got 30 or 40 seconds, Lord. Here's my list, you know? What's it like to enter into the presence of God in this way with full assurance? Full assurance that when he sees you, 
He doesn't look at you and say, oh man, how I hate you. When you walk into the presence of God, he doesn't say, I've been waiting to judge you. When you walk into the presence of God, he doesn't say, I'm glad you're here. I've got this list. Somebody get the file cabinet for me. With full assurance, we walk into the presence of God and all he has for us is forgiveness and acceptance through the blood of Jesus. This is what we get to to celebrate and remember today through an ordinance that the church calls the Lord's Supper or communion. For much of church history, the the way that this would go is, is a priest would administer this to you. In some places, they still do that. Uh, They would administer to you because it had to, literally the bread and the the wine, the juice, would have to come through a priest for it to have any significance at all. But we believe that we are a royal priesthood. Every member, a minister, every believer, a child of God, every one of us, equal and undeserved access. And so what we do as a church, we, we come forward and we receive this, this bread and this wine. And in Jesus' instructions, it reminds us of the sacrifice and we participate in the sacrifice that he made for us on our behalf. And I would invite you even now in a spirit of reverence kind of to re- reflect and respond. Reflect in, in this way. Scripture says that it's, very, it's dangerous for us to take these elements while we hold on to our sin and our fleshly desires. Scripture actually warns against that because what it, it's essentially, I don't know of a great way to put it, it's except it, the way that I visualize it, it's, it's almost spitting in the face of Christ while he's on the cross. Thank you for this, but I'll have what I want, please. It's, it's, a, it's a mockery of what he's done. So scripture warns us, it says, be very careful of that. Now, what it doesn't say is that it would command us to all be perfect, that none of us would take this. We would have nothing, this would just be a show. There would nothing, nothing would be underneath the plate or in the cups, right? If you had to be perfect, we would just dismiss now and be like, you know, better luck next time. Jana could come and take it. What it means is that that we are letting go. It means that we are in full assurance of only what Christ has done for us. And we're entering into the presence of God under those circumstances. Only by Christ. So I would invite you, as Jesse plays for just a second, I want to invite you into a time of reflection, reflection to say, is this the way that I'm living my life? Only with Christ. I would also urge you, we're gonna have prayer partners in the back that would that are able to take you back into the cafeteria behind the curtain and you can just have a time of prayer with them. So I'm having trouble with a heavy conscience, maybe. I'm having trouble believing that Christ has paid for my debt 
I'm having trouble living in a way that says I'm living in freedom because Christ has set me free. This would be a moment where you would go back and you don't have to explain all of your past, all of your struggles, all your things. You can just say, would you pray for me that I would live out of the freedom of Christ? And for the rest of us, we might sit here and we might pray and beg the spirit of God to deliver us from the chains of sin and reflect on his sacrifice that set us free. We'll pray for just a minute, reflect, and then we'll open the tables for you to respond.